Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our study this Sunday is our first reading, Haggai 1, verses 1 to 11, as printed in your bulletins and already read. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how many times have you said or thought it? It just doesn't make sense. There are plenty of times in life when things just don't seem to add up. He was a good kid from a good family. How did he get hooked on heroin? It just doesn't make sense. He was a hard-working family man. They just celebrated their 20th anniversary. How could he just walk out of their lives like that? It just doesn't make sense. She took such good care of herself. No family history, but cancer? What a mess. It just doesn't make sense. Now, one of the reasons that we often complain that things don't make sense is because we like to think, especially when we are young, that life should make sense. That there is some law of nature, scientific breakthrough, or higher principle that will explain everything and make it all seem rational. But the older and more experienced among us know that there are plenty of times when life obstinately refuses to comply. We could each come up with dozens of examples. What sense is there to the hatred of a Hitler in his concentration camps, the abuse of a child, sudden sickness after a lifetime of health? It just doesn't make sense. At least some of the Old Testament people of Judah must have been thinking along those lines as they were dragged away into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem surrounded and assaulted, their homes torched, their lives destroyed, the Lord's temple a smoldering heap. Weren't they supposed to be God's chosen people? Destruction, death, deportation, it just didn't make sense. And 70 years later, when the people returned to Jerusalem, they likely thought the same thing. The holy city of God would have been a ghost of its formal self, former self, with, with walls and gates broken and crumbling. The, the temple courts that once thronged with people and shook with the sounds of singing, now a mute heap of rubble overgrown with weeds. It just doesn't make a bit of sense. The uh, Israelites of the prophet Haggai's day decided then to roll up their sleeves and put some sense back into life. They decided to rebuild. They installed a new altar on the Temple Mount, and soon they told themselves they would dig a little deeper, lay the foundations, and build a brand new temple. But you know how people are. Soon, they lost interest. You see, rebuilding the temple was an everyone and a see-the-results-later task. There were building projects that made a lot more sense because they were me and mine and now. Why? Why should they spend precious time and scarce money building the Lord a house when their own houses needed so much work? You can easily imagine the rationalizations. My wife won't put up with the dump we're in now. 
I've got to make her happy, which means I need to work on our house, not God's. Or, hey, you know, if we take care of ourselves and our situations right now, then we'll just be in that much better a position to take care of God's house later. But you know that later never came. After a good start and laying the foundations of the temple, almost 15 years went by without any real progress on the project they had all agreed to prioritize. And that's where the prophet Haggai comes in. He's called one of the minor prophets because his book is only two chapters, but he proclaims a major message that, humanly speaking, doesn't seem to make a bit of sense. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. So it turns out that the returned exiles, with their paneled houses and their procrastination with God's house, were preaching a sermon of their own about personal priorities. They proclaimed that self came first and God second. By their choices, they said that giving to God first doesn't make a bit of sense. And oh, it is easy to think just like they did. The experts tell us that if we are careful to set aside what we get today and invest carefully, we'll get lots more money. And it only stands to reason that if we give money away now, that we end up with less later. That's the way it works, right? So then we reason that if we prioritize the work of the Lord with first fruits giving, then every other area of our lives will necessarily suffer. Or that if we give our time, talents, and treasures away, well, then we have less for ourselves and what we love. And our culture tells us, and our sinful nature happily agrees, that the goal of life is more. More than mom and dad had? Sooner than they had it, and better than they had in every way. More. So yeah, humanly speaking, giving to God doesn't make a bit of sense. But the looking out for number one, grasping for more and more money, and the gathering, keeping, storing, even hoarding of that stuff that we call the good life, God calls bad. It's greed. We may call it sensible, but God calls it sin. And God calls out His people for it. In Haggai's sermon, the Lord turns upside down everyone's eloquent excuses not to give. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. We can sum it up simply. The people had less, not more, because they gave little. God Himself was seeing to that one drought, one failed crop one holy purse at a time. 
If you think about it, it makes sense. The God that can feed a nation with manna in the wilderness, or 5,000 hungry men using only one boy's lunch, well, also then has the power to make sure that people's more money, food, and stuff will end up less than they expected. But why would he do that? To sober them? To sober us up to reality, to what really makes sense? You know what else sometimes helps give a spiritual reality check? Take an idea or an attitude you're living with or operating by and express it as a prayer. And see how it sounds then. Imagine, for instance, a Christian praying, Thank you, Lord, for giving me the skin color I have, because this is obviously a sign of your favor, and it means that I am better than and deserve to rule over people who have a different skin color. Now, God doesn't have to give you a verbal answer to a prayer like that. Just saying it makes clear that the idea is all messed up and obviously contrary to his will. So now try it with some attitudes toward money and things. Dear Lord, thank you for that raise that has finally enabled me to afford the fine things in life I've always dreamed of, even while my church struggles to pay for repairs. Dear God, thank you for that I have had the wisdom to pay off all my debts early so I have financial freedom while my congregation's debt continues to keep it from its mission. Or Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wonderful state of our economy right now. I'm happy to live in this great nation, but I'm not happy to be preached at about my money, and I don't intend to change anything about my giving, so please have Pastor finish up this sermon quick. Amen. None of those prayers sound quite right when you actually say them out loud, do they? But this helps us see that in not-so-subtle ways, we often preach sermons of our own with paneled houses and procrastination with God's house and work. We may not say it, but our choices and actions show that we apparently believe it. Giving to God first doesn't make a bit of sense. Here's a little quiz. Is the level of employment in America right now up or down? Are the stock markets up or down from where they were, say, five years ago? Are professional athletes getting paid more or less than they were? Is more or less being spent on video games, on cars, on homes? It's not hard to answer those. They're all up. Now, how about our expenses here at church? Up or down? And how about our offerings? Up, down, or flat? Do your answers about the state of our church match up with the state of our economy? Haggai's sermon to his people, God's word to them, preached some pretty harsh law, condemning their choices and laying out their consequences. I am not going to do that today, and we want no one to give from guilt. But just as he asked them, so we ask ourselves, 
Are we willing to prioritize the Lord's work in order to support our congregation's mission and ministry? Just as the returned exiles of Judah got the economy that their choices called for, we get the ministry that our choices provide for. The simple truth is that a congregation's leaders can only work with what God's people are willing to give. Now the good news about the people of Judah is that they responded promptly and generously to Haggai's message. They went back to work and built God's house, and they did so confident that the Lord would not let them starve or freeze or suffer for their generosity. How could they be so certain? Because they knew what kind of God they had. One who gives more generously than we ever could and who, in fact, gave Himself completely for us. Which brings us to an important truth. When you get down to it, it is not our giving that makes no sense. It's God's giving that makes no sense that the almighty Lord of the universe would give himself completely for sinful rebels who want nothing to do with him makes no sense whatsoever. His love and sacrifice for us is unearned and undeserved. And that's why it's called grace. And God's grace is simply amazing. Jesus did not give a tithe, 10% of himself for you. He gave everything for you and your salvation. He left his home in heaven and became homeless here on earth. He traded glory for poverty. He gave up a place among praising angels for life among corrupt, needy, disbelieving, and disrespectful sinners. He was so dedicated to your salvation that He gave up every comfort and accepted every pain, all with the goal of suffering and dying on a cross to take away your sins and defeat death and the devil for you. Jesus didn't swipe a credit card to pay for your sins. He shed His precious blood and gave His life to set you free. So what do we do with the Lord like that? In Christ, God graciously gives us all things. He washed us clean in baptism. He gives forgiveness, life, and salvation in the Lord's Supper. He promises never to leave or forsake us. And He doesn't only give us our our daily bread, but also opens His hands and satisfies all our desires. A God like that, we thank and praise, and pray to, and most of all, we trust. We count on Him for everything, especially for equipping and enabling us to do the very things that He has commissioned us as His people to do. So the question before our Christ Lutheran Church family is this. Is our relationship with the Savior our life's priority? Or is it Just something more occasional. Here's an exercise to help you answer that. Go home this week and spend a prayerful half hour with your latest credit card and bank statements. Look at the numbers and see if you can spot any priorities that they might point out to you.
They say that numbers don't lie. And then take the time to pray about what you find and what you don't find. Now imagine what joy there would be and what things could be accomplished if you and your brothers and your sisters here were all able to reprioritize and recommit to building God's house and doing His work together as His people here in this little part of Maryland. It's not hard to see the opportunities. The harvest of souls is all around us. They're coming here. And it's all throughout our nation. Just as the blessings of life here are obvious all around us. Are the resources there? Not just to pay our bills, but for aggressive gospel ministry? Is the resolve there? Do we desire to make a real eternal difference with our lives, money, and things, or our paneled houses our priority? Do we give God our first fruits or our leftovers? Those are a lot of questions. Some of them very hard, but they need to be asked and answered. My prayer this morning is that Haggai's message opens your heart in a major way this week. You worship a God who is willing to make much into next to nothing because of our greed and who desires to make very little into abundance for His people because of His love. You worship and belong to the ultimate giver. God gave you His first and His best, His Son, the firstborn over all creation, Jesus, in whom He is well pleased. In Christ, God graciously gives you all things. Your God is faithful. Trust Him. Bank on His promises. And then get busy. Not building a new house, but filling this one up. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.